country has been referred to as a melting pot. People have immigrated from many different lands with a variety of languages and culture, coming to America and supposedly coming together, assimilated into one new large culture. But rather than coming together, it seems as though America is becoming more divided than ever. Not only America, but our entire world. And as a result, our world is filled with strife, misery, heartache, fear, and terrorism. Sectarian groups are killing one another. Race tensions between white police officers and black Americans are making the news almost on a daily basis. There's the generation gap, conflicts between the young and the elderly. There are gender inequality issues and the socioeconomical problems that result. There's the great educational divide with differences in standard of living and the haves and the have-nots. There's the political divide. There are the red states and there are the blue states in all of the differences that accompany those ideas. Is the Bible relevant to our day? Does it speak to any of these issues? Could one's allegiance to the kingdom of God make any difference in these things? Well, this morning, our focus is on the unity in the kingdom of God despite its diversity. Unity in the kingdom of God despite its diversity. We're going to look at this parable together today, and I begin with some introductory material to the parable of the dragnet. The parable of the dragnet is one half of a set of twin parables. The twin to this parable is the parable of the wheat or the tares. Now, we've been noticing that most of these parables are in twins. It is the same issue addressed with some different nuances. In each of the preceding twin parables, they could be divided between parables concerning the invisible kingdom, that is, the true kingdom, that is, the kingdom of which everyone is born again, or the visible kingdom, that is, those that profess faith in Jesus Christ, or those that profess to be followers of Christ, but some are and some aren't in actuality. Here, however, both parables, the parable of the tares and the parable of the dragnet, are addressing the visible kingdom. There are similarities and dissimilarities in the parable of the tares and the parable of the dragnet. So let me begin with the similarities. I'm not going to look at all the verses that support this. I'm just going to uh, 
list for you the similarities in these two parables. I know it's been a number of weeks now since we looked at the parable of the tares, but I hope that uh, it's familiar enough with you that you can reflect on some of these ideas. First, as I said, both are parables concerning the visible kingdom. Secondly, both parables teach that the righteous and unrighteous coexist in the visible kingdom for a period of time. Third, both parables teach that at a time future, the righteous and the unrighteous will be separated from each other. Four, both parables teach the future time is the end of the age. Number five, both parables teach that this separation will be accomplished by the angels. And six, both teach that a time future, the unrighteous will be cast into the fire. In fact, that description is identical. Matthew 13, 42, concerning the tares. And throw them into the heavenly fir- uh, throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then our parable, verse 50, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then seven, both parables are only found in the book of Matthew. They are unique to Matthew's gospel. In each of these parables, and noting that they have been twin parables, I've been saying that the hermeneutical principle that we must camp out on is it is the dissimilarities of the parables that one must really take into account to understand their true meaning. It's easy to focus on the similarities, but we need to look at the dissimilarities if we're going to really understand the parable. So let's talk about the dissimilarities of these parables. First, in the parable of the weeds, the presence of the unrighteous in the visible kingdom is attributed to the work of the evil one. A person comes and sows weeds into the field while the workers are asleep in the parable of the weeds or tares. In the parable of the dragnet, the presence of the unrighteous in the visible kingdom is not attributed to anyone in particular. It's not a dastardly deed, if you will. In the parable of the weeds, the interpretation is divided by time. Jesus gives the parable, gives other parables, teaches, the multitude goes away, and then Jesus explains the parable to the disciples at a later time. In the parable of the dragnet, the interpretation comes immediately upon the giving of the parable. A closely related thought. The parable of the tares is given to the multitudes. However, the parable of the dragnet is given only to the disciples, and that's the reason for its immediate interpretation. Remember that the other parables are given so people won't understand. Only those that ask for the interpretation is it given. But here, the interpretation comes right away because it's for the sake of the disciples. Remember, Jesus has departed from the crowd. Notice Matthew 13, verse 36. 
Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came unto him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He then explains the parable of the tares and then gives them this parable. So it is a parable strictly for the disciples and not for the crowd. It is this parable, then, that introduces the understanding statement, verse 51. Have you understood all these things? And the reason he asked that question is because of verse 13. In verse 13, the disciples ask, why do you speak to them in parables? Answer, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So they don't understand. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because they refuse to understand. If they want to know, they can ask me, but they don't want to know. You are given these parables, and you are to understand them. So he says, do you understand? They say yes. And then that understanding is going to lead into the last and final parable that we will deal with perhaps next week. I haven't decided yet if I'm going to do verse um, 51 by itself or take it with the next section. I'll have to work on that more. But let's look at the parable of the dragnet explained. First, the parable of the dragnet is a parable with which the disciples would readily identify. Notice what it says. Verse uh, 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind. As I said, the disciples would readily identify with this parable. After all, they had been fishermen before they had become disciples. Matthew 4, 18. And walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So this parable was very suited to them. They knew about nets. They knew about fishing. And Jesus had called them to be fishers of men, Matthew four nineteen. He said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So at the very onset, at the very beginning of their call, they had understood about fishing and its implications for being fishers of men. But to understand this parable, we need first to see where the emphasis is laid and where the emphasis is not laid. Okay, so where the emphasis is laid and where the emphasis is not laid. First, where the emphasis is not laid. It's not on the responsibility of the fishermen to divide the good fish from the bad fish. Notice verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Now notice these words. When it was full... Men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. At first glance, if this is all 
that was recorded for us, this parable would sound a lot different from the parable of the tares. If you remember, in the parable of the tares, we have the good wheat growing right alongside the weeds. And the disciples asked the question, should we uproot the weeds? And Jesus says, no, you don't uproot the weeds, lest you're also going to uproot the wheat along with them. But just wait, and at the end of the age, the angels will come, and they will reap, and they will separate the good from the bad. So if all you had was verse 48, it may sound like this parable teaches something different, and that is that we need to separate the good fish from the bad fish. However, that is not the case. For notice verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. So we find out this parable is teaching the same thing that the parable of the tares does. That is, that it's not our responsibility to weed out, or in this case, separate the evil fish from the good fish, or the bad fish from the good fish. That's the angel's prerogative. That's going to happen at the end of the age. So we find out, in fact, these two parables are the same in that respect. The second thing I'd point out is that the emphasis is not about the duty of fishing. There is no exhortation to fish in this parable. There is no instruction on how to fish in this parable. This is not a parable that teaches us that we need to fish, although we do need to fish, but that's not the point of the parable. It's not a parable to instruct us on how to fish, although there are places in the scripture that certainly teach us how to fish, but that's not the point of the parable. So what is the point of the parable? The emphasis is on the catch of fish. It is the fish itself that is in primary primary view. We are to look at the catch. Now, what is striking about the catch? First, it is not simply the size of the catch. Now, it is true that we are told in verse 48 that the net is full. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. But it's not about the size of the catch. Jesus already gave two parables about the size of the kingdom. He gave us the parable of the uh, mustard seed, of how it starts so small and then grows into something so large. And he gave us the parable of the leaven, of which a little bit of yeast is put into a, a large bit of flour, and eventually that whole flour uh, is uh, cultivated and results uh, in its having risen. Uh, The yeast spreads throughout. 
It's not about the size of the catch. I think that's significant. Because in the incidences in which Jesus interacts with the disciples regarding fishing, elsewhere, the emphasis is the size of the catch. Now, I'm going to look at a couple of other passages. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. I'll be reading out of the... ESV this morning. Luke chapter 5. This is an incident recorded at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus with his disciples. Upon their call to service, if you will. So Luke chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God... He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Okay, they'd already been skunked, and they'd already fished at the best time to fish. But if Jesus tells them to do this, they're going to do it. And when they had done this, now notice there are five things that that stress the size of the catch. First, they enclosed a large number of fish. Two, their nets were breaking. Why? Because they couldn't hold this large catch of fish. Three, they singled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. This was too much for them to do by themselves. Number four, they came and they filled both boats. And five, they began to sink. The catch was so large that these boats that were made for fishing couldn't handle it, and they began to sink. It's about the size of the catch. They had caught nothing, but at Jesus' command, not only did they catch fish, but fish like they never had caught before, five emphases on the size of the catch. This is also true in the renewed call to the disciples. Now turn with me to John chapter 21. We have an incident after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus had risen from the dead, and he appears to his disciples. After the disciples, uh, excuse me, after Jesus was crucified, the disciples did not know what to do. Therefore, they went back to what they knew and did best. They went back to fishing. Peter said, I'm going fishing. Who's going with me? And so the other disciples accompanied Peter, and they went back and started fishing again. 
John chapter 21, reading at verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. Simon said to him, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as in the very beginning. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, just like in the original call. Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. Again, it's about the size of the catch. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, number two, dragging the net full of fish, for they were far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went abroad and hauled the net ashore. Notice third statement, full of, fourth statement, large fish. 153 of them. And although, next statement, there were so many, next statement, yet the net was not torn. It's about the size of the catch. There's a, a striking aspect to this uh, passage, and that is in verse 11 of John 21, where it says that there were 153 of these fish. Why the specific number 153? There have been a lot of speculation about that. Some say it's just to show, again, the size of the fish. But uh, the church father, Jerome, refers to the opinion of a learned naturalist of the second century. His name was Oppian, who is said to have ascertained that there were 153 different kinds of fish in the seas, and that the apostles took of every kind, revealing the ultimate success of the fishers of soul with every kind of man. Now, I don't know if that is true or not, but if you go back to Matthew chapter 13, in this parable, verse 47, what makes this parable unique is that it's not about the size of the catch. It's about the diversity of the catch. Notice verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every 
kind. Fish of every kind. Every kind of fish is brought into this net. The fish of every kind are then divided into two groups. The good and the bad. Verse 48. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw the bad away. The good and the bad are interpreted in verse 49 as the evil and the righteous. So will be be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous. So the good and the bad fish are evil and unrighteous people. The parable explained and applied. The evil will be discarded. The good will remain. Verse 50. And throw them into the fire furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said, have you understood this? They said, yes. Not just this, but all the parables. What are we to understand from this parable? Well, the emphasis is on the diversity of the catch. And the singular distinction that is between the righteous and the unrighteous. The fish were not separated into their kinds. They were not separated into groups of different kinds of fish, but all these different kinds of fish were put together into one net and then separated out into two groups, righteous and unrighteous. The visible kingdom, and the invisible kingdom for that matter, is comprised of people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. The kingdom consists of all kinds of fish. All kinds of people are a part of the kingdom of God. Revelation 5.9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. There will be all kinds of fish represented in heaven. All tribes, all people, all nations. The only distinction that matters is the distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous, between the saved and the unsaved, between those that are going to have eternal life and those that are going to experience an eternal damnation. Jesus is teaching a very important lesson concerning the kingdom. First, it was not going to be comprised of the Jews only. The kingdom was going to be made up of all kinds of people, from all nations on the face of the earth. And one did not get into the kingdom by being Jewish. 
And one was not held out from the kingdom for not being Jewish. It wasn't about nationality. It was about being righteous or unrighteous. And that righteousness ultimately had to be the righteousness of Christ. Did they understand this? They said yes. And yet, they really didn't. They didn't fully understand this, and there's good reason. First, for now, the disciples were to only be reaching the Jewish people. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said this. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter into the city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't go to anybody else. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. Go only to the house of Israel. After the resurrection, this same Jesus is going to say to 11 of these same disciples, All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always in the end of the age. The last thing that Jesus says to these same 11 men, before he's ascended into heaven and before he comes back, the last thing he said to them was, you shall be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, unto the uttermost parts of the earth. All people are going to be a part of this kingdom. That is the great good news. The evil will be discarded, the good will remain. There's going to be some significant changes that are going to take place. And that's why in verse 52, we'll get there either next week or the week after, he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. What's the application to this parable? Answer, we need to understand the differences that matter and the differences that do not matter. There are a host of differences among the people's and nations of this earth. Language differences, cultural differences, economical differences, educational differences, gender differences, and we can go on and on emphasizing our differences. They don't matter. They simply don't matter. 
whatever they are, you can be a part of the kingdom. Our political party doesn't matter. You don't have to be Republican to be in the kingdom. And if you're a Democrat, it doesn't mean you're not a part of the kingdom. Or we can put it the other way. Just because you're a Democrat doesn't mean you are in the kingdom. And being a Republican doesn't prevent you from being a part of the kingdom. But in our culture, it seems more the emphasis is the other way. But the point is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Our nationality doesn't matter. Our race doesn't matter. Our socioeconomic status doesn't matter. Our gender doesn't matter. Christianity is not a male thing. Our age does not matter. Christianity is not just for the old. It's also for the younger generation. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is if a person has a personal relationship to Jesus Christ. We're just going to be divided into two groups, people. Just two. One group will be in heaven. One group will be in hell. And the only distinction between those two groups is having a personal relationship to Jesus Christ. We need to understand that. And the good news is, you see, that anyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ has eternal life, is a part of the true kingdom, and is our brother and sister in Christ. For that's the only thing that matters. Everything else is irrelevant. Everything else just fades away in eternity. None of that will mean a single thing for eternity future. And so, it shouldn't mean much to us now. So what relevance does the gospel have to our world? It should be the unifying factor, the unifying factor of the people of God. One of the things that I am very excited about in the whole emphasis of the missional church movement as opposed to the uh, church growth movement is uh, in the church growth movement, it was very important to identify particular elements of our culture and then try to zero in on that culture and be that culture. So the church would zero in on the 30-somethings, and they were going to be a 30-something church, and they were going to 
They were going to reach the 30-somethings. And somebody else would reach the elderly. And somebody else was going to reach the, the black. And somebody else was going to reach the Hispanic. And somebody else was going to reach the white. And somebody else was going to, to uh, focus upon the poor. And somebody else was going to uh, try to uh, reach the rich. And everybody was being targeted. And the, the church was, was trying to be a microcosm of that particular group. And you went to the church that you felt most comfortable with and the church tried to make itself so that it reached that particular group and they would feel the most comfortable. What excites me about the missional church movement is its emphasis on multi-ethnicity, of coming together, no matter what one's ethnicity, whether you're Hispanic, whether you're black, whether you're Latino, whether you are European, it doesn't matter. Coming together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor, it shouldn't matter. Coming together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the real message. And our culture, our society desperately needs that. Demonstrating real respect for those that differ from us because the differences don't matter. Only one difference matters. Whether a person knows the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior or not. Let me put it to you another way. It doesn't matter how much we have in common. It doesn't matter how much a person is like us. They may have the same accent as us. They may have the same color of skin as us. They may be the same age as us. They may be of the same economical standard as us. They may have the same level of education as us. They may like the same music that we do. It's not about finding people like us. Because there are people like us that are lost. There are people in our own families that are lost. We need to understand it's not just making people conservative or vote the way we do. That's not the goal of the church. It's not to make people like us. It's to make people love the Lord Jesus and to worship and serve him. That is our unifying factor. That is what brings us together. That is what should cause us to rejoice in each other's presence because they're a part of the true kingdom. I think that is the message of this parable. A lot of diversity. But unity among that diversity. Only two groups. Those that know Christ and those that don't. So let us be concerned this morning about every single human being that doesn't know Christ. And let every single human being that knows Christ feel comfortable in our presence. May we respect them 
May we delight in them. May we guard their reputation. May we do them good and not harm all the days of our life. May we truly receive them as our brother and sister in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray for any here this morning who do not know the Lord Jesus as their Savior, and we certainly invite them to place their faith and trust in Jesus, for you alone can save. You alone can deliver. O Lord, may they turn to you, for you are the way, the truth, and life, and no man comes unto the Father but by you. And even as we sung this morning about the church and the healing of our streets and the turning the back of our nation, Lord, as we sang that great song, may we understand its real significance that in Christ, healing does come. In Christ, there is a true brotherhood of man. In Christ, all the other differences don't matter. Oh Lord, help us to be children of your kingdom in the truest sense of that word. And when you ask us, do we understand these things? Oh Lord, help us to understand them. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.